0: Well it's Sunday, April 14th, I just ran down to my office to grab my recorder so I could record a podcast on the way to the ski resort today. This is the final day of skiing at Alta, oh, excuse me, not at Alta, at Deer Valley. It's one of my favorite resorts. I usually get about a 10 or 15 ride pass for the year, and then as I use those up, I can renew them for the same price. It's about a third less than people visiting will pay, so I save a little bit of money that way. So it's going to be about a 45-minute drive up to the resort. Normally, I spend this time listening to podcasts because that's my favorite, my favorite form of entertainment when I'm driving. But today, I guess, I will record a podcast. It's a clear day, a little brisk. I wish I was about a half an hour earlier to get out of here, but... By the time you get up, have a nice breakfast, have a cup of coffee, time disappears fast. My daughter and my granddaughter came over to our house yesterday. They live over in Elko, Nevada. Her husband works for Barrick. She's pregnant with her second child, so my second grandchild, and it appears to be a higher risk pregnancy. So in order to bring her over to what's considered some of the best medical care in the world she's staying with us until she delivers and she'll be delivering when I'm out sailing this summer. She had her first child when they were living in Australia. And this will be their second and probably final child. I got a few I got actually after my last podcast I got three or four notes from listeners (laughs) commiserating with me that no, I wasn't just talking to myself and that there were listeners out there and I appreciate it. A couple comments. One from a Belgian sailor and I don't have his email in front of me. If I was doing this in front of my computer I'd read his email and I may get some of these mixed up but one of the listeners wanted me to talk about building of the boat the actual construction of the boat Uh, another one of the listeners uh, wanted me to talk about uh, the trip across the Atlantic Um, another listener asked that I repost the Spike Hampson interviews or I guess I never posted them on this podcast they were on my other podcast, Travel Trade Exchange, but I don't think I ever posted them on this. There's quite a bit of material that I've got on that other podcast that is no longer out there. And one of them, one of the interviews is one of my favorite interviews with Eric Hansen, who wrote the book on foot across Borneo. And Eric actually left America during the Vietnam War to to avoid going into the draft and figured he'd never come back to America. He was going to be basically an expatriate the rest of his life. So he ended up traveling all over the world in Australia, in Greece, in Borneo, in Indonesia and along the way. He had a lot of adventures and the first book he wrote was after he had talked to another travel writer The travel writer said, hey, you've already got the experiences. All you've got to do is put it down on paper. So his first book that he wrote was called On Foot Across Borneo. And it became a bestseller at the Frankfurt Book Festival. When, after that point in time, he really never needed to write. Again, it was such a a great seller. And it's a book I've read and a book I enjoyed quite a bit. I like reading travel adventure novels. Well, it's not a novel, travel adventure narratives and that was a very good narrative. So Eric, I invited out to go sailing with me and he wanted to, but time has never really worked in to to where he could come out with me because he actually spent uh, a winter on one of my favorite islands in Greece and he told me where he lived in the in the interview he would not identify the island because he said he did not want other people to learn about it and ruin it. And after the interview, I said, is it this island? And he said, yes, it is that island. How did you know? And I said, well, I've been there. So anyway, he's never hooked up with me. But that's a great interview. And I may want to post that interview at some point in time. Somebody said, uh, post some photographs of my boat. There are some on the website already. If you looked at my T-shirt design, which I posted quite a while ago, it's there. Another listener asked and this was a listener from Newfoundland, that I put out a copy of my liability release form so other people could use it. I'm somewhat hesitant to do that because, first of all, it identifies my boat in that form. Of course, I could go through and delete all the information relating to my boat. But I, I did not designed this for myself. I basically plagiarized a form that I found on the Chicago Yacht Club website which was a release that parents and participants had to sign in order to participate with the Chicago Yacht Club sailing programs. So I would suggest that you go there, see if you can find a liability release form from the Chicago Yacht Club. You might just Google that and then modify it as you would for your own boat. Now, I'm not a lawyer, I don't know if it'll stand up in court, but it's a lot better than not having anything. A few weeks ago, I did my final sail on my friend's boat, Desperado, a Choi Lee 47 foot boat. I think I told you before, in fact I did a big podcast with a lot of photographs of the trip before with him down there, and then the trip back across Nevada on the loneliest highway in, in America. Uh, Jack has deteriorated further. We took him out, and we knew this was going to be his last time we took him sailing. Buddy, Bud, my friend Bud, and I took him out, and we had another one of Jack's contractors, who's building a house for Jack up in Park City, came along as well. And I also had another friend, Phil Grimm, join us for a day of sailing. First day we took him out, uh, there was no winds. Whales were running back and forth a lot. We didn't see whales, we saw a lot of dolphins. The next day, it was a very nice, beautiful, clear day. We talked to the people where the whales were running, and they said, Well, go out beyond the platforms. Now, this is out of Ventura, California. They said, Go out beyond the oil platforms, and the whales are out there. So we got up. There was no wind when we woke up, no wind most of the day, so we just motored out. Beyond the platforms, basically looking for whales. About the time we got out beyond the platforms, it was around 2:30, 3 o'clock in the afternoon. The winds had come up. The winds had come up, and we decided it was time to head back. We head back. We had a wonderful, just a beautiful broad reach sail all the way back to the marina. And Jack told me after he got off the boat that he realized that he really could not handle the boat himself. He'd had the boat up for sale for over a year. He was asking $99,000 for it, which in my opinion, the way Jack had maintained this boat was an absolute steal. He still couldn't sell it at $99,000. An offer came through at $89,000 the next day, and he took it. So Jack is selling his boat. And there goes my opportunity to sail in Ventura, California. I won't miss Southern California that much for sailing. I have other friends that have boats down in Newport Beach. But quite honestly, sailing off of California's coast is pretty damn boring. Usually the winds are pretty light. You end up motoring a lot. There's not very many places to go you can go to the Catalina Island been there done that many times you can go to Mexico it's a it's a real pain to clear in and out of customs going to and from Mexico and once you get down there it's Mexico you can go to the Channel Islands but a lot of the Channel Islands have absolutely nothing on them except anchorages and the anchorages are not particularly good anchorages when you compare them to the anchorages we have in the Mediterranean. What I would like, throw this out there, you guys. Any of my listeners up in the northwest want to have me up to go sailing once in a while? That's the area I miss. British Columbia, Anacortes, Washington, Bellingham, Washington, Oak Harbor, I spent five years sailing up in that area, and that's the area I miss. I love sailing up in the northwest. I always said, if I ever bring my boat back from Europe, that's where it's going. Back up to the northwest. No other part of the western coast of the United States really holds much appeal to me. I've sailed on San Francisco Bay. It's too, cr- too many people, too crowded. It doesn't hold much appeal to me. But the northwest... Ah, I love the Northwest. Unfortunately for the Northwest, you've really got pretty much the same season sailing in the Northwest that you do in sailing in the Mediterranean. So it's basically a summer season. But some of the best sailing is the shoulder seasons, early and late. September, October up in the Northwest can sometimes be beautiful. The trip up to Desolation Sound is phenomenal. So. That's where I would like to go sailing again. My friend Roger is planning on chartering a canal boat in Ireland next year. He's trying to line up people to join him off and on along the way. I'm not sure if I can do that because that would be conflicting with my normal sailing schedule in Greece and Turkey. But it's something I'd like to do sometime. Also I'd like to do the French Canal sometime take my wife and do that. So I'm going to talk a little bit about my philosophy on building boats. And then I'm probably going to finish out this podcast with the first half of the interview with Spike Hampson. I don't have any particular skill in woodworking. When I had a a junior high school class. I think I got a D in woodworking. But I decided I was going to build my boat myself. Not the full boat. I wanted to buy the hull and deck and then finish the boat from the inside out. So that's what I ended up doing. Of course, before I start any project, I spend months reading about what I need to learn and what I need to do and learning as much book reading as possible. Here's an observation I'm going to offend a lot of people but it's an observation I've had in my years of travel. Americans have big garages and as far as my point of view a garage should never be wasted on a car. A garage should be a place for a man to store his tools and putter around and that's what I've always done with my garages. That's where my tool shop is, that's where my workshop is, that's where I go to putter around. I had a secretary once who said her husband doesn't own any tools, does not know how to use tools, has no intention of learning how to use tools and I thought, this guy's not a man at all, he's a eunuch, a real man has tools knows how to use tools or wants to learn how to use tools. Otherwise you're of little use. That's my opinion and it's a damn strong opinion. A man has to have his tools and he has to know how to use his tools. And the more skills you have, the better off you are and those people around you as well. So I always had my workshop and I had a few tools didn't have the tool set I have now, but I decided on the boat I was going to build. It was going to be a Bristol Channel Cutter, Sam Lyle Hess Designed, Sam Moore's d- built, Holland Decks, Bristol Channel Cutter, and the reason I chose this boat is I was a very big fan of Larry and Lynn Party, who wrote a lot of books, Cruising in Seraphin, uh, Seraphin's a Atlantic Adventure, Seraphim's Mediterranean Adventure. Just look up Larry and Lynn Party, and it's spelled P-A-R-D-E-Y. They sailed around the world in a boat like mine. First of all, a smaller boat like mine, and then later on, a boat mm, slightly larger than mine. So I bought the Holland Deck, had it delivered to my house. It was a big bathtub. And basically, just start at the sole and work up. I actually cast the lead myself. I got the patterns from Sam Moore's company of how big the ingots needed to be to fit into the hull, so it's an internal internal ballast, not an external ballast. The ballast is encapsulated in fiberglass. So I cast the pigs of lead myself, but prior to that I'd spent five years gathering wheel weights from tire shops and bringing home buckets and buckets and buckets of wheel weights and then I set up a big cast iron bathtub, put a bunch of propane torches on them built molds for the ingots out of plywood, buried them in the ground heated up the molten lead and then opened the spigot and poured the lead into my molds and I had four molds that I needed to make I had these pigs of lead made before the boat arrived. So they were all ready. So when the boat arrived and a crane came in, he unloaded the boat, put it on a concrete pad that I had already poured and had ready for it. And then at the same time I had him lift my ingots, my lead ingots into the hole of the boat. And then I had to fill that fill any excess cavities with resin and BBs and then layer several layers of fiberglass over the top of that to make sure that lead would never come out of there. That was the first project on the boat. The next project was really to build a shelter around the boat so I built a big steel shelter around the boat so I could work on the boat in the winter and that's really when I spent most of the time working on my boat because in the summer I was building a a summer home up east of uh, Park City up in the Uinta Mountains in Utah. So I was handy. Now the reason I like to be handy with my hands is my day job. I sit at a desk and stare at a computer and move pieces of paper around. And even though numbers on ledgers go up or down, when they go up you're supposed to feel good, when they go down they don't. you're, you're supposed to feel bad. It doesn't give you a sense of accomplishment. It really doesn't. People at work and stare at numbers all day, create nothing physical, they create intangible profits and losses, which may be turned into tangible profits and losses, but it's not like there's a physical item there that you've produced, built, made, envisioned, imagined, brought to fruition. I like the building process because it gives me a sense of accomplishment. Well, that started, then I started with the sole. I made all the interior wood out of teak, plywood, the exterior is out of teak, and a little bit of genuine mahogany. Now, there's a million different types of mahogany, but this was the, and in hindsight I wish I had gone just even teak with that because that's the one little bit of boat, that's one little bit of wood on my boat that I have to keep varnished and I don't keep up with it like I should. Also my tiller I have to varnish. I've gone through three tillers. The first tiller delaminated on me, didn't do a good job. second tiller uh, delaminated on me or broke, I don't remember what. third tiller has been there for oh, quite a while and it's been holding up just fine now. Uh, getting the right glues to hold different woods together is a real, sometimes a trial and error process. I used to use resorcinol glues, which was a two-part urethane-based glue, but the EPA has taken those off the off the market, so you can't get the resorcinol glues anymore. But those were by far in my opinion the best glues to use for if you had a tight joint to use on wood. If you don't have a tight joint, then the epoxies work okay, but I've not had that great of luck with epoxy glues. Now there's a couple new glues that have come out since I built my boat. These are the Gorilla glues. And I noticed they're using these glues in boat building a lot. And I noticed they were using it down at Sam Moore's company before Sam died and, and it changed hands a few times too. So they must be pretty good glues as well. These are the type of glues where you put them together. They foam up. You have sort of a foam around the edge. You learn to do some fiberglass along the way. I did a little bit of fiberglass in junior high in that same class that I did woodworking in. Learned enough about it to know the process. It's not a hard process. The hardest part on, on fiberglassing is to getting the resin to catalyst mix right. Too much catalyst and it sets up too fast on you. Too little catalyst and it never sets up. And I had quite a few learning curves going through learning how to glass in the bulkheads that were not already installed on the boat when I got it, and other various things that you end up having to glass in. I started out, my skills in woodworking started out marginally and improved quickly because the cost of making mistakes when you're using teak, which at the time was $20 a board foot and I think today it's closer to $40 a board foot. The costs are expensive when you make mistakes but I've still got lots of pieces of teak out in my workshop that I will not throw away that are leftovers from some of the mistakes that I made along the way. I started out with big pieces of wood and eventually had little pieces of wood and I never threw a scrap of teak away unless it was really too small to do anything with. It's it's an overwhelming process when you start building a boat like mine. I never really built small boats. I'm not a model builder. I don't see much point in building models to me. I want to have something tangible that I can do something with. So models don't hold much appeal to me. I appreciate the craftsmanship that it takes to make models. But the functionality of a model is nothing except to sit up on a shelf and admire. I like to build things that are tangible, a house, a boat, let's see I'm building a kayak right now in my garage and I'm building an electric bike in my garage. And if you go onto some of my YouTube sites, you can see I've built kayak paddles, bee bottom boards, that sort of thing. So I, I always have one or two projects that I'm working on because I like to build things. All right that's all I'm going to talk about, the boat building process. The key is, take your time, spend your time. There was one time, it was in the middle of the winter, and I I was trying to build the plywood boards that held the speakers inside the boat. And they had multiple compound curves on them. And it took me a whole day for one side, just to get one side right, because I would Cut just a little bit and fit, and cut just a little bit and fit, and cut just a little bit and fit, and cut just a little bit and fit. And every time I get out of the boat, I look at that piece. And most people wouldn't pay any attention to it, but I realized how hard it was to fit that one piece of wood into my boat. Take your time, be patient. Enjoy the process. If you're not enjoying the process, if you're just in a hurry for the results, you probably should just go buy a boat but if you enjoy the creativity the reward you get from actually building something with your own hands go ahead and take on a project like this now I was going to make this comment here's my comment I've been to Europe been to America Europeans have tiny tiny garages and what do they do with their garages they put their cars in them because there's no place to park the cars on the streets Americans have big garages and they have big streets Cars go on the streets and a real man has his tools in his garage. And for that reason, I think Americans will always be more innovative than Europeans because we have the room to experiment and fail. And failure is accepted in the American culture. Just a comment. Just a comment. (laughs) It would be interesting to see what you listeners say. I did have uh, the summer sailing season. I offered one of my listeners out of Las Vegas a spot on the boat this summer, but it turns out their time schedule doesn't allow for them to join me. I'm probably booked up right now, but I may have one opening. One of my friends, he can sort of come and go as he pleases. For him, he's been on the boat several times. He can fly anywhere he wants. He has flying privileges for free on Delta Airlines, so he can come and go as he pleases. And he may or may not join me on one week. If he doesn't join me, I might have one week open. So if there's listeners out here that want to uh, let me know, they might be available for that. I can give you the details if you drop me an email. And like I say, there's no guarantees, there's no promises, but I can at least keep you informed of the week that might be open. Any listeners out there having their boats up in the northwest that want me to sail with them, get a hold of me. I'd love to go back up there again. All right. Long introduction. I'm just going by the exit to Park City, but I go around the back. The ski resort will be open about a half an hour before I get up there, which is too bad. And I'm going to call it a, a pretty damn long introduction to this, the rest of this podcast. Thanks for listening, and I really do appreciate the comments I get from listeners. And if you get a chance, go to the iTunes store, put a comment there. Oh, and by the way, if you want to become one of my clients and then get first chance at sailing with me, I'm always looking for new clients. I manage investment portfolios. I'm a registered investment advisor, and it's on a fee basis. That's all I'm going to say about that. The name of the firm is Amison Hunsaker & Associates, A-M-U-S-S-E-N, H-U-N-S-A-K-E-R and Associates Incorporated. We have a website, amisonhunsaker.com. Normally I don't advertise because this is really about sailing and not business. Thanks. This is Franz. I'm with Spike Hampson. Spike is a, an adventure that I met at the University of Utah, he teaches up at the University of Utah in the Department of Geography. But he lived, lives a very geographic life. You've been all over, Spike. You've been to the Caucasus. You've been to the Far East. You've been you sailed in the South Pacific. It's and the story I like is the one of you building a boat, and so far you've taken it down the river. So tell me that story. That's a good one to start yeah. out with.
1: Well, it's hard to figure out a start for that story, but actually, uh, yes, I built a riverboat, 20-foot inboard-powered, jet-driven riverboat. Uh, I didn't really know what I was doing. I ordered some plans from uh, this company in California, Glenel Marine. They have uh, simple boat plans for home builders, not for yacht builders but for people who are handy with tools but uh, so they have simple basic designs uh, generally pretty seaworthy not extremely beautiful but in most cases but but serviceable boats and I picked out this river boat because I had this idea in my head that maybe I could build a boat and go through both North and South America that was the that was the thing that got me motivated about this was the prospect of taking a boat through both of those continents Um, and so I, I worked out a route and I got all excited about the route and that motivated me to buy the plans and undertake the construction. Building the boat took me, uh, four years, basically, uh, built it in Park City area where there's a lot of snow in the winter. I built it outside. I had cover overhead. I had to build a deck under which I could build the boat, so, uh, but I didn't have any protection from the cold. so in the wintertime, I didn't get that much done on it, but I would spring, summer, fall, I'd I'd work pretty steadily on it, but slowly. Um, but this was back in the late 90s and uh, 2000 to, let's say, I guess, 98 to 2002 was the time period when I was building the boat. Um, it wasn't actually the first boat I built. I built a, a, a sailing catamaran in the Hawaiian Islands back in the uh, 70s, and that was frankly, the most wonderful experience of my life, I have to say. I, I was so pleased to have constructed that boat, and then I used it to learn to sail in the Hawaiian Islands. And I had always intended that I would build a bigger one, use it to sail around the world, just never got to it. And so this, this riverboat thing was something that came along in my mind later on when I realized that decades had gone by and I had given up on my original dream and I shouldn't have. So I was trying to retrieve something from all of this. So that's what got all this started. So anyway, um, the boat uh, turned out wonderfully. Of course, anybody who builds their own boat thinks it's wonderful, but it is wonderful. I love this dog, I think, um, in spite of the fact that it's a real dog. I mean, it's got all kinds of problems. I get engine problems. I, I can't go to Windward. and I, I mean, I can't punch into things at all and you know it's really unsuited for lots of conditions especially the conditions I'm in right now because right now it's out in the Caribbean um, in the Turks and Caicos Islands and I'm trying to get to Windward trying to get out to the uh, to the east and then veer south to get down to Venezuela and I'm basically island hopping and the task is to to find calm enough days that I can make a crossing from one island to the next without getting beaten up too badly um, so the boat's not really intended for that. It's designed for rivers and lakes, and most of the trip is that. So I um, started in Wyoming and went across the country and out the St. Lawrence and uh, then down the whole eastern seaboard. But most of the eastern seaboard I was able to stay in protected waters in the, in the intercoastal waterway, uh, not around Nova Scotia, not down the New England coast, but after that. Uh so it's it's been a wonderful trip. I've been at it so far for eight years and uh doing two, three, four months each year, basically. Um the objective is to get to South America and, and follow a sequence of rivers that would take me through the continent south to Buenos Aires. Now when I started this whole project, I, I had in my mind that from the time I left Wyoming until I got to Buenos Aires, maybe we're talking, you know, a year and a half, something like this. Um, And I was giving myself plenty of time, I thought, but uh, I I quickly realized, no, that's not the way it is. But it's actually better this way because it doesn't really matter where I am. It's just such a great excitement because it's always some new place that I've never been before. And even if you've been a place before, if you haven't been there on a boat, it's a different place. It's just a totally different world when you approach some place from the water. And... um, that's especially the case, for example, going down the Missouri. Um you know, I've driven back and forth across the country many, many times, and getting across the Great Plains, it has its uh, it's it's inspirational in one respect, but in other respects it's rather boring. Uh crossing all that open, empty prairie. But when you're on the river, no, it's not prairie. It's all you know, you've got cottonwoods all the time, you've got Uh, You're usually down in a little valley, it's much more interesting, and uh, so the Missouri route across the Great Plains was a great experience, plus it has a whole series of reservoirs which most people don't realize are there, but they're huge things, they're comparable to Lake Powell in size in many instances, you know, so um, you've got a lot of lake boating as well.
0: How Um, would you get around the reservoirs?
1: That was one of my biggest concerns when I started out. And that's one of the interesting things about a project like this is, you you know, on the one hand, if you think too much about it, I will get to your question in a second, but you think too much about it and uh, uh, you, you'll never solve all the problems, you know, so you have to kind of just go on good faith, right? But you do try to anticipate all the kinds of problems you have, and then you end up worrying about some that you haven't figured out a solution to. This was the one I worried about, and it was the least of problems. I got the boat... Um, I got the boat to a location in Montana on the Yellowstone River and I had, had been shuttling between my truck and trailer and the boat so I would um, take the boat down the river then I had to get it past a, a weir so I then hitchhiked back up my truck and trailer and came and found a place to haul the boat out put it in on the other side of the weir. and. I did this twice and finally got the boat down to I can't remember the name of the town of Montana but it was on the the Yellowstone River and I thought well now I know when I get over there in North Dakota there's going to be a dam to get around and I know there are going to be five more after that so I'm just going to have to do the same thing I'm going to have to hitchhike back to where the truck is stored get the truck and trailer drive out and do this and then find a place to store the truck and trailer and this didn't bother me I thought this will work I'll manage it this way Um, but what actually happened is that it was never a problem at all getting around the dams because people are always curious what are, you, what are you doing you know and I say well I'm just going down the river and I and they say well uh how are you going to get around the dam and I say, well I haven't figured that out yet and I say well I got a truck I'll haul you around and sure enough you know uh, three occasions I had people just haul me around who were just standing beside the dock where I came into a marina and they just did it for me and uh so I never had any kind of problem at all getting around these, these dams. So
0: the kindness of strangers then, huh?
1: I, I cannot tell you how much this changed my attitude about Americans. I mean, I, 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 am, I am thoroughly American in many respects, and I, I love my culture. But I did have this mentality, this attitude that, you know, all these people in the rest of the world, lots of them are a lot nicer and a lot more generous and a lot kinder than they are maybe in America. But no, it's not true. When I went down the river, everywhere I went, people would go out of their way to do things for me. Of course, um, it was in rural areas. I don't know, it's not really, I don't know if there's a difference between city and country, but it was all uh, rural America, basically, that I was dealing with. But everywhere I went, people were really, really good to me, and I became much more uh, uh, respectful. Of just how nice a country this is. I don't want to sound like patriotism. I just mean the people are nice and they're so friendly and helpful. I had people do things for me all the time. You know, I, I now I can't even begin to identify things. But you know, I, I remember one place I went into, and it was a marina, and it was closed. There was nobody there, and. And so I thought, well, I'll sneak in and I'll just park for the night. This is on the Missouri. So I park the boat and I'm walking around trying to find out if there's anything I have to worry about. And then this guy yells at me and asked, wants to know what I'm doing. And I tell him and I say, well, I was just hoping I could park the boat. And he says, ah, sure, tie it off and come on up and have dinner with us. And so I go up and, you know, I'm having dinner with this family of total strangers. And they've got a friend in and they, this was in the spring and they had, uh, Just taking a trip across country about 30 or 40 or 50 miles to some place to get what they thought was the best corn that could be gotten, And they were just eating corn for dinner. And so we sat there and ate cobs of corn. Well, they had a few other things as well. But basically it was about the corn. And... uh, yeah, it just sticks in my mind because this friend of theirs who was a massive guy, he ate something like 15 ears of corn. You know, <laughs> I got through three, and I thought I was really <laughs> overdoing it. But uh, it was just a, a, a relaxed approach to life that I hadn't realized was quite as widespread as it is. Were you always by yourself? Almost always. Um, I actually... I uh, tried to get started in the fall of 2004, and now fall is the wrong time to try to start a boat trip on a river in the west, um, and okay. I knew that, but the problem was that I had finished the boat in 2002, the whole objective was to get on this trip, and one problem after another had gotten in the way of my getting started. And in the spring of 2004, I had planned to go, but then my parents needed help, uh, they were retired and in Arizona and wanted to move to a new location. I'm an only child, and I really needed to go and help them. And that that ended up taking up the whole summer. And so I was into September before I was really free of obligations, family obligations. And I thought... I can't wait any longer. Damn it! I'm just going to go. I'm going I don't care. I'm going to get the boat up there and try it out. And so I got the boat up to this Bighorn River in Wyoming, and now we're talking about high water now, right? Oh, this is really, really low water. <laughs> oh, really? It's fall. It's oh, fall. Okay. Right? It's October. It's okay. the end of the season. So, um, actually, it was a, a guy who does local shows here named Chad Booth who helped me uh, haul a boat up here. He does recreation shows of one sort or another, and. He did a small video of the whole experience. But he helped me get the boat up there, which is a story in itself. I had all kinds of problems getting that boat in location. I, trailer breaking down, and oh, I can't begin to t- explain it all. But um, he took me up, and we found this place to launch in the Bighorn River. and I got Not a, a
0: regular launch ramp or anything no, like that? No, this is
1: just a little dirt track that went down to the river that seemed to be... Nobody was around, so we figured we could put it in. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, so he got the boat in, and uh, no sooner was the boat in the water than it was grounded. Uh, it was so shallow. Now, uh, what's, what, is your, what does your your boat draw? One foot. One foot. Okay, one foot. so it was shallower than a foot then. It was shallow. I, I thought this was basically impossible. I figured, I got no problem. I got a one-foot draft. I got nothing that sticks down because it's a jet drive. So I thought, you know, I've got it beat. There's no way I can't float this river. I was wrong. This thing was, this river was so skinny that I spent a week on that river, during which time I did not cover more than 10 miles. Um, I spent hours every day pushing myself off of sandbars and rock berms and uh, trying to get maneuvered, which was often very difficult because in fact, the current was pretty strong. And so once the boat got lodged on a sandbar or anything, getting it off was against the current. And so I would have to put out anchors and try to winch in on the anchors and tie off to trees and haul and shove one end of the boat, then shove the other end of the boat. It was, it was really... And you're
0: doing this all by yourself. I'm doing it by
1: myself. Yeah, that was the question, right? I'm sorry about that. So, so that whole first season, yes, I I had um, that, that fall, I had no one with me and I spent a week. Made very little progress and finally accepted defeat. It had turned cold. It was threatening to snow. The water was freezing. I didn't have to worry about hypothermia because I was working so hard. But basically, I was in the water wading around most of the time. Anyway, I got the boat out of the water, and that in itself was quite an event because it would involve these, these two Wyoming characters who were just uh, one of them. I'd, I'd parked the boat beside his land. Right? And and uh, you know they're pretty protective about their land up there, and you can't touch shore next to, to uh, somebody's land in Wyoming. You know you can stay on the water, but you can't touch shore. So it's considered a navigable river, but you yeah, don't have that's right. Don't have rights to the shore then. But this guy, um, he was very nice to me, and he helped me. And he had a neighbor who was upset about my being on the river, and he and his neighbor had an ongoing war. I mean they just. <laughs> they just fought between each other all the time. They just, just for fun, I think. You know, I think it was just their temperaments, their nature, you know. Whatever one wanted, the other one didn't. And so, finally, I had reached this place. He had helped me. He said, yeah, I'll I'll help you get someone over here to, get the boat out, and I know a place where we can pull it out. And I said, well, where's that? And he said, well, just up, up the river back about 150 yards, there's a place. And I said, oh, is that your land? And he said, no, it belongs to my neighbor. <laughs> <laughs> I said, well, what is he going to think about this? And he said, oh, we won't tell him. <laughs> so <laughs> so we we go get up there, and it's just this mud wallow. It's impossible to me to believe that it's going to be possible to get a trailer in there and haul my boat out, which is really a pretty heavy Runabout you know uh, as it's loaded down with all kinds of stuff, as you can imagine and uh, but we get these guys to come out from the nearest town, and I guess it was Thermopolis, and uh, we uh, have a trailer and they're they're trying to get this get in position and it turns out that the neighbor has a little runabout tied up in there, chained away, and so the guy who's helping me who's got the land just downstream he says ah oh, that's no problem we'll just cut the chain and so <laughs> see because gets the chain and, and moves this this aluminum boat and and we worked for about an hour and a half and finally managed somehow to get this boat out of the water on a trailer that was way too small for it and just a um, single axle trailer and it, uh, i got the boat stored for the winter so uh, up there in wyoming up then? there in wyoming so i had failed in the first attempt
0: so, was, but these people were all helping you just out of the good kindness oh of yeah, their hearts?
1: Yeah, they're just, yes. Well, not the guys who brought the trailer. Okay. They, uh, we hired them. Okay. Right? But this guy uh, whose land I had parked on, he he was very, very helpful and very nice. Right. Um, so anyway, I, I left the boat over over the winter there, and I knew that in the spring water levels would be better, uh, be a better chance to get going. So in the spring of 05 is when all of this started. But I was nervous because of the experience that fall. I'd really struggled, and I was kind of anxious about, can I get this to happen? So uh, I actually um, got a friend at the university, uh, a professor in political science named Dan McCool, who uh, was willing to go with me to get started. And so in the spring of 05, he and I went up there at the appropriate time, got the boat launched, and and started down the river, and things went much more smoothly. And over the course of four days, we covered some, I don't know, maybe 150 miles or so, more or less got to the Montana border. And um, then Dan left, went back to the university, and I carried on alone from there on. So there was that one time for four days when Dan was with me, and then uh, the following season, I, I never was anyone with me. Um, the third year, yes, I had uh, a friend on board a couple of days and that sort of thing, but so usually that, alone.
0: So the first real season was really your second season out Correct. then. So we started in uh, in Wyoming and went through Montana. How far did you get that year?
1: Um, that, that second, that when I got started second, and things yeah. went ahead, um, I got down, I got up the Bighorn to where it joins the Missouri, or the Yellowstone, followed the Yellowstone up to its junction with the Missouri. And then took the Missouri down to the Mississippi, up the Mississippi and then into the Illinois and through Chicago into Lake Michigan. And then I followed the east coast of the lake or the shore of, of Michigan State and went up that shore to, uh, what was the name of the town? Holland? No, uh, further north. Grand Rapids? Yeah, uh, near.
0: Yeah, oh, Benton Grand Harbor, Ra- Benton Harbor. No, Grand Rapids. Grand Rapids, and okay.
1: I stored the boat there the first, at the end of the first season. So I had figured by then i 'd be down in Florida or something, but you know I, that was as far as I got. But what I learned is that this is just great first of all, I ex- expected this to be the worst part of the trip that is the least interesting mhm but it wasn 't it was exciting, it was fun. I had just a great time, and it was beautiful everywhere I went. I really liked the the the, 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 the landscapes and the and the towns, and you know it was just really a really lovely trip and so I was really excited about this so I didn't care that it was taking a long time.
0: Now when you're working your way down the rivers before you got to the Great Lakes, would you just tie up along the side, tie to the tie to a tree, how would you anchor at night?
1: Yeah, I would I I just pull over the side of the river and find a little eddy or some place where it was not uh not too rambunctious and and tie off to a tree or pull on shore or what have you. My boat is really basically pretty
0: pretty light then i mean in the water i guess
1: yeah i mean it it's it, we're talking a couple thousand pounds you know okay uh so it's it's not exactly a runabout and it's it's a handful for one person to push around but you can beach it as long as you haven't got any obstructions and push it off again and uh just you know if you just nudge up to shore and and take a line to shore that's all i needed to do i had if, if it got beat up on the bottom, I'd deal with that the next season, you know. <laughs> so, yeah, it was fine that way. Um, and yes, I would just tie off any old place. Um, didn't stay in any marinas or anything, except to one in Omaha, Nebraska. Otherwise, no. Till I got to Lake Michigan, then it's a different story, right?
0: You have to stay in marinas I on to Lake Michigan. Stay in marinas
1: then, yeah. because basically, getting off the lake is kind of a problem. There are relatively few places to do it, and most of the places you can do it are. Towns and pretty busy and even there I managed to find places that were not marinas because one of the great advantages of the boat is it's so small that You can hide it. You can just hide it somewhere. You just stick it somewhere and, and it's fine. It only needs a, a foot of water, so lots of times you can put it behind the dock instead of tied to the dock, you know. So it it's it's been nice that way. But no, I that's first season uh, it was basically just tying off at nearest location. I had one funny incident at the first Reservoir, which is Sakakawea, um in North Dakota. It's about a 90-mile, 100-mile-long reservoir. And I worked my way down this reservoir to the down downstream end where the dam is, and there was a marina there, which is a typical pattern. Typically the marina is going to be somewhere near where the dam is. Um, and I did stay in the marina there. I forgot about that. And then the next day, someone hauled me around the dam, Put me in downstream, and I merrily went on my way and traveled that day for a few hours because I hadn't gotten transferred until you know midday or maybe one in the afternoon. So I carried on for two or three or four hours. Then I tied off at the side of the river next to this town, and the town was maybe four miles away. But I carry a bike on board, so I could always bike to any place I wanted. Is to this go.
0: the the famous Bike Friday? It is. And okay. That's the
1: reason I got the Bike Friday was okay. to have on the boat. All right. um, And, uh, so I, I tied off and took the bike out and pedaled off and wandered around this little town and, uh, then returned, got on the boat and night came and I, you know, I made something to eat and went to bed and about, I don't know, two or three o'clock in the morning, I'm asleeping and all of a sudden the boat just, it tips over on its side about 30 to 40 degrees. And and bumps and I, and I what in the world is going on? And I get up and look around and I'm up on a, a rock pile. I'm completely out of the water. The water is at least 10, 15 feet away, and I'm sitting on this 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 gentle slope that has small rocks and boulders. All Were you just all drifting
0: over. down the river at night? No, I was tied. I were was tied, tied off
1: at the side of the shore. Well, tide tied. Tied is not right. I was. Right. A- I had my anchor, anchor out and just stuck it in the ground out there. Right? Okay. And, but now I'm completely out of the water. Well, had your anchor dragged? No. Turns out that they let water out of the dam on a regular sequence in such a fashion to generate more power during certain hours of the day, and less power at other hours. And I had arrived at a time when, relatively little water was being. Um,
0: oh, when you am uh, The we, other way, water was, a lot of being, was
1: being was being oh. allowed through, and now they, there wasn't much water being passing through, passing through the dam, and so so the, the river, river had dropped. Then the river dropped a good oh four feet, something like that, I'd say. Right, wow. And so when I got up in the morning, I said, Oh my God, what am I going to do? How am I going to get this boat in the water? So I spent a couple hours working at this, and I, I discovered that this this rock pile actually was just a bed of rocks, and underneath the rocks it was kind of a mucky, sandy stuff, and the rocks were superficial. And so I thought, well, the boat is sideways to the river, it's maybe 10 feet away, I'm just going to pull all the rocks and s- pull them over to the side. So I spent an hour just pulling rocks, because they were all small enough so I could lift them and handle them. And I was creating a sort of muddy way, and I thought once I get that done, then I'm going to go search around for some some branches or something that I can lever the boat up onto and then see if I can skid it down to the water. Right. <laughs> so I've been working at this for about two hours, and this guy comes along. He's driving up on the highway, and he stops. And he says, you don't have to do that. The water's going to be coming back up in a few more hours. <laughs> I said, oh, so... So, so that's
0: how you discovered that that was the reservoir. That's right. That's okay.
1: Right. So I thought uh, okay, great. So I took my bike and went to town. <laughs> Came back, and sure enough, the boat was floating, and I took off and headed downstream.
0: Did you have to worry that? Uh, did, were you worried about that from there on yes. out? Yes. So you, it was. So you always made sure you <laughs> yes. had plenty of depth <laughs> then, huh?
1: Yeah. I, I realized then that especially near the dams, you get a lot of variation in the river level. All right. Uh, once you're maybe 20, 30 miles further away from the dam, then it's not so noticeable. You still get a fluctuation. But at that point, I didn't have a read on it. I didn't have any sense, you know. But there is a definite variation in the river level most everywhere hmm. because these dams do generate power. And the power is needed certain times
0: a day more than others. All right? <laughs> Do you have any specific, uh, you know, you have a lot of memories, and they probably all jumble together. Oh, they are. It's terrible. And uh, But does anything in that stretch of the river down to where it joined up with the Illinois, does any particular story stick out in your mind? Yes,
1: there's one that's classic to me. Really? Yeah. When I came into this, the, it was actually before this problem getting around that dam, was uh, Lake S- uh, Sakakawea. Let me take a break here for a
0: second. Okay. It's okay. I gotta go. Well, that'll conclude today's podcast. I'm uh, driving back now from skiing. Actually, I skied till about 1 o'clock and then came down and decided to drive up to our summer home area to see if I could get in there. And I did. I was able to drive in, park my car at the gate, and walked, oh, maybe a quarter of a mile into where my home is. There's still about 3 feet of snow on the north side of the house but it's completely gone on the south side of the house. There was a tree that had fallen across the road to get in so I opened up my shed, took out my chainsaw and cut that up so that when we open it up, and by opening it up really we're talking about turning on the water and the electricity for the summer. We'll be opening it up before I go sailing this summer so while I'm sailing my wife can go enjoy our summer home, which is in really a beautiful location in the Uintah Mountains. This uh, property that our summer home is on is part of her family's property that's been in her family for well over a hundred years. That's how we're lucky enough to have a piece of property we could build a summer home on up here. We have a river that runs right down in front of our summer home area and it's really quite beautiful. I went elk hunting on there last fall, saw one cow elk, seven bucks, lots of does, lots of blue grouse or what are now called a different name, but they used to be called blue grouse. But I did not get an elk and when the buck season came around I went deer hunting and all those seven bucks that I saw the week before had disappeared and I didn't get a buck either. So anyway. I'm not one of those that's opposed to hunting. In fact, I enjoy it. Let's close out this podcast. And also, if you do need to get a hold of me for any reason, you can always email me at franz, F-R-A-N-Z, at medsailor.com or use the contact form at the website. Sail safe.